oh, who cares? I just want a picnic and go to the crag and go <laughs> climbing, throw my phone in the river, say what you like. I don't care. <laughs> That's what I'll be doing when I do, if I do range that. Like, sod it, let's go to the pub. <laughs> I think there are things, moments in climbing where you find everything seeming to just kind of go in your favour and you're, you're experiencing some flow a little bit where you you kind of share on this slightly slightly sloping rail just love the experience of, of holding that and having this real sense that there's a beauty about where I was at the time it's almost as though we're, we're looking for those we're trying to find those sweet spots those wonderful moments there I was doing what I could do if I just let myself do it this is what I could do so it was like I'd I'd stepped into my own world. The day after I interviewed Dave Thomas for the last episode, I met Mina Leslie Viastic for the first time. I'd expected this encounter to be different. Dave was operating at the ridiculous end of the spectrum, a life of risk, high emotions and artistry. And with Mina, I got some of what I expected. She's a professional athlete. There's structure and logic to the way she talks, the way she acts and the way she trains. Dave's story is all risk, emotion and the sense of loneliness. And on the face of it, Mina's is the polar opposite. She's a sport climber and boulderer. She doesn't appear driven by emotion, ego or danger. And as you'll hear, an important aspect of her climbing is community. Isolation would mean she couldn't do what she does. And what she does is impressive. Four eight C's at this point. Only two at the time I'd spoken to her. And the chance to become the first British woman to climb 9A with an ascent of rain shadow at Malham Cove. In the last episode, I wanted to know what drives someone to take extreme risks for personal fulfilment. With Mina, I wanted to find out, where do you get the drive for a distant goal? How do you keep the faith? Does it require an authentic desire? You'd think Mina's story would be totally different. But actually, it boils down to the same key features. Mina's risk is psychological, but not in the way you might expect. She seeks flow, that escape from conscious thought, those wonderful moments in climbing. But more than that, she's escaping one form of identity and seeking to become something bigger. You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. My name is Mina Leslie Briastic. What led me away from competitions? Yeah, the main thing was I just wasn't having fun. They weren't making... I wasn't having a fun experience doing them. And yet I had this juxtaposition of when I would go out rock climbing and I, you know, I felt like my soul was alive in a way that I didn't when I was travelling to these competitions that I was putting all this time and energy and effort and money into. And I had this kind of epiphany moment that none of that was... None of it was bringing me any happiness, but nor did I feel like it was, it was teaching me stuff, but it wasn't teaching me the stuff that maybe I was after, or it was, it was somehow guiding me in the wrong direction. I felt like my motivations were in the wrong place. My, what I was striving for didn't fit with my values and it all just felt like a bit of a (laughs) car crash for want of a better phrase very much like a snapshot of performance and the problems vary so much and the style varies so much so 
you know, I had experiences where I would travel for hours, you know, for example, all the way to China to get to a World Cup. And then it would be really like dino focused. And I'm really awful at dinos. And I get a bit scared on them because I whiplashed off one really badly once. So it would be like a stressful experience. And I just think, oh, well, was that worth it? So it wasn't just a case of not liking not performing well. I mean, I didn't like not performing well, but it was also feeling like my kind of performance was being judged on a sliver of perhaps what I had to offer, which is, of course, the same for everyone. Yeah, it just, it, it lacked something for me in the end, but I did really enjoy them to begin with. So there was a definite, it wasn't that I always didn't like them and eventually realized that. I really, really liked them and I was really psyched for them and I put a lot of time and effort in. And then, but then that gradually changed and it took me a while to kind of wake up to it not suiting me anymore. It was almost like I, I want to say, grew out of them but that sounds patronizing to um competitors I, I don't mean that as you mature you're no longer interested in competitions that that would that would not be what I mean but for me that was certainly the case somehow yeah I had a really good year in 2013 and then the following year struggled to reproduce that I mean I was still making semi-finals pretty much every round I think but I was kind of knocking on the door of finals but not quite making it and I just wasn't quite there I was nearly good enough to be making finals but not quite but I wonder you know if I'd made a final whether I would have felt any different you know it's always the next thing then you would have wanted a podium and then you want to win one you know like it's a constant progression until you're the top and then you're defending that top spot at the end of the day it felt like often it wasn't about me or it you know, some de- some competitions I would do well, but I kind of knew deep down that I hadn't climbed any differently. It was just because someone else had had a bad day that I'd got a good result. I think after a few experiences like that, it just started to feel a bit empty. You know, one event merges into the next. You know, I can't remember when my best events were, for example, now. I, I, don't, I think I'd struggle to tell you where my best placings were in the World Cups when I did them. But I remember the years that I did significant things outside that meant a lot to me or roots or boulder problems that kind of I put a lot of work into yes yes you kind of have that element of celebrating for 20 minutes then going oh what next but they for me certainly they stay with me I did attach quite a bit of self-worth to how I was performing at the time I mean I think that was also a factor of my age I was younger then and perhaps more impressionable and more open to having my self-worth more pinned to a results-focused experience. So, yeah, I think that's something that's really changed for me over the years. Mina's move away from competition climbing has seen her become one of the best sport climbers in the country, with a sense of mecha extension and bat route among her standout achievements. It's a far cry from the snapshot of her performance in competition. Fail on the red point and you can always return. Mina told me that even on her hardest ascents, she knew she would do them, given time. Rain Shadow is different. No British woman has climbed 9A yet, although there are several well on their way. In attempting Rain Shadow, Mina initially had to take on a different mentality, one which accepted that she might never do it. In fact, it was more than that. It was about creating the belief that not only could she do it, but that she was the type of person who could do it what brings me happiness is has ended up being more process related and more experience related like yes it's obviously awesome to top something out to send a route but that's always a culmination of all the many days that you've put in and 
those days have got to be fun. Otherwise you wouldn't put them in. You know, I, I love every trip to Malum to try Rain Shadow. I mean, yeah, I suppose it's exhausting, but it's exhausting in the same way that a job that you love would be exhausting, but it's still interesting. Like it fascinates me, all this stuff. I find it really, I enjoy reading about training. Like I, I basically really like learning. I think if, I think if your overall experience is one of striving for something for the wrong reasons, if there's a lot of expectation attached to it, or you're doing it for the, you know, to impress people or whatever, then all this stuff is going to feel quite stressful because it's building towards a kind of extrinsic outcome goal. But if you just really love climbing and you really enjoy trying a route, it's just interesting. And yeah, it's tiring, but most fun things are tiring. Yeah, one of the big themes is the level of uncertainty that comes with trying something that you don't really know if you're good enough or will be good enough to do. And balancing the kind of psych and excitement with also having some feelings of like vulnerability and fear of failure and, um, you know, spending a lot of time working on something that I might never do. Most routes or boulders or things that I've tried in the past, I've kind of known deep down I could do them so long as I persevered, the psych stays there. And sometimes the psych doesn't stay and you move on, you never go back to it. But most things that I've really cared about and have done, I've known for most of the time of trying them that as long as I didn't give up along the way or break my legs or something that, you know, it was possible. Whereas with Rain Shadow, I was never, at least at the beginning, I wasn't sure. And nor have I been sure, you know, now I'm more confident that I can do it, but I don't know what the timescale is on that. So when I first got on Rain Shadow, I absolutely didn't think I could do it. And then, I mean, on the ground before I went up and had a feel of the moves, because it was actually Ben that talked me into going up and feeling out the moves. I'd had That's a ben conversation Moon. with Stu Littlefair, I think it was the year, the autumn before, where he'd kind of planted the seed in my mind of, oh, you should try it, you know, it's not height dependent, blah, 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 blah. Um, it's amazing. It was the day he sent it on the car journey back and it was incredible watching him climb it and that was really inspiring. And I often get kind of sucked in by routes after I've seen someone on them because it's just incredible watching someone in that kind of flow experience moment when they send and it was really impressive watching Stu climb it. But then I think it was the following it was the following spring and I, I think I'd recently done bat route. So I was kind of slightly at a loose end having done my most recent project and we were at Malham and loads of stuff was wet, I think. So I think I had plans to get on something a bit easier, you know, just do a kind of a quick tick something. But everything, lots of stuff was wet and Rain Shadow is one of the most perma-dry routes at Malham. And it was when Ben was trying it. He just, it was freezing that day. It was so cold. And he was like, why don't you just go up and have a look and just have a feel of the moves? And I was like, well, come on, like this is far too hard for me like knowing the breakdown of the route and how hard the crux was I was a bit like yeah and Ben was like well if you brought it down to the ground you've bouldered that hard and I was thinking yeah but it's halfway up a route and it didn't really look like my kind of style if you like you know I, yes I've bouldered a handful of AAs but generally they've been things that have suited me I would say anyway so he talked me into it and I went up in the freezing cold and had a feel on the moves and I could barely move between the holes I think I was like holding positions and then sitting on the rope and then holding another position. And I was, you know, I evidenced to myself that it was at that point certainly far too hard for me. But somehow it planted a bit of a seed. And it's funny looking back now. Now I can, for example, climb through the crux. Now I'm like, wow, 
I'm amazed that I didn't give up then and <laughs> considering I was that bad on it then. I, I really like taking a big challenge, something that's going to push me, going away and getting better and coming back to it and getting better in terms of my knowledge base, in terms of my strength and my power and my fitness. And But it's not just being a robot and going away and doing pull-ups. It's also trying to understand energy systems, trying to understand nutrition, trying to, you know, it's a way of growing and learning in a multidimensional way that culminates in being better on one route. But it's that one route that drives me to go and learn all these different things and develop in all these different ways. So often when I'm looking for, I say looking for, when I'm often goals that I'm drawn towards or dreams or roots or whatever that I'm drawn towards are the ones that have multiple kind of, they require a lot from me. They're complex within generally the confines of sport climbing. There's a lot to kind of develop there. Like to do rain shadow from when I started, I needed to be fitter. I needed to be stronger. I needed to be a better climber. And all those things required me to understand physiology, technique, training protocols you know I've got a much better knowledge now than I did when I started out about all those things I needed to manage my head game I've learned loads about flow and about breathing and about anxiety it also has made me a more confident person because in order to try range I had to step into quite a vulnerable place of I'm going to publicly because you can't really get away from it Malam. like range shadow goes right up the middle of the crag I think at the beginning I was like oh I can just have a little try and I don't need to tell anyone that this is my project but it kind of is pretty obvious and you can't get away from it so I had to step into this vulnerable place of yes I am a strong confident woman and I am going to try range shadow even though I've not climbed the grade below and even though it might be too hard for me but I'm going to try it anyway and I don't care if people think that I'm silly for trying it or that it's too hard for me. And I don't care if they still think that when I don't do it, if I don't do it. I'm just going to try it because at the moment that is what motivates me and I'm enjoying it and it's fun. You know, I had to take a deep breath and step into, you know, lean into the discomfort of trying something that felt out of my comfort zone, that felt uncertain, that felt like, People might think certain things about me or think that I was arrogant to try it. I don't know, whatever I thought that people might think. So it required me to develop in maturity as well. It so it, And it also, you know, I've had to deal with fear on it. I had an accident on it and I hurt myself quite badly. And I had a really, probably one of the most terrifying days of my life up there. And I'm totally physically fine now, which is great. But at the time, I didn't know that. And I think it's easy for me to look back and think, oh, well, I'm fine now. It was not a big deal. But before I knew I was fine, I didn't know I was fine, if that makes sense. And getting back onto the route after that was a huge challenge in and of itself. But I'm probably a bolder climber now than I was before, because I had to really look at it. And I had to Again, take a deep breath, lean into the discomfort, go, okay, I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to break it apart. I'm going to analyze the bits. I'm going to put it back together and I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to come out of this mentally stronger. And that is eventually what ended up happening. But that doesn't mean that at the time it wasn't kind of scary and terrifying and and all that kind of stuff. So it's, I guess what I mean is that in red pointing or trying to red point or taking on a project that's been really hard for me in a number of ways... I've grown and developed in a number of ways. So even if I never do it, 
I've had this incredible journey of learning and I'll be stronger and better and mentally better and all those things. There are far more cultural barriers to sport for women than there are for men still. And it's way, way, way better than it was, but it's still not completely there yet. And a lot of it is implicit, like bias. It's not conscious things. It's not that women are being told directly, you can't do this. But there are so many things in our environment, our cultural environment, that are limiting or, you know, push towards inertia in certain ways or just kind of support beliefs around body image or you know there's just a lot of subtle stuff still going around that's not intentional necessarily but isn't also useful and often these kind of barriers we don't always see them until afterwards or we don't see them you know like for example when when Stu and Ben were like on you know different occasions were like oh you should go up there and check out the moves I didn't identify necessarily with being someone that would go up there and try rain shadow and you know retrospectively i and i don't think this has been a thing for me generally in my climbing life but i'd only ever seen men up there and still i've only ever seen men up there and it's not to say that i consciously thought i can't go and try rain shadow because only men climb rain shadow but in a subtle undercurrent way i didn't identify with being the type of person, whether that's gender or not, that would be trying that route, would be up on that section of wall. I mean, it was, what, early 90s when Lynn Hill freed the nose. And if, I don't know, like, it's. I think it's funny because with climbing, it's so multifaceted. Like, the skill set required to climb a hard route isn't just about pure strength. If it was, then... <sighs> You know, but flexibility comes in, fitness comes in, efficiency, hip flexibility, ability to kind of distribute your weight. You know, there's so many things that the gap has, you know, to a certain extent closed perhaps with men and women or closing, but there is still a gap. And I do think that gap is down to physiology. You know, you guys have more testosterone than we do. So that's like being on steroids or not being on steroids in terms of muscle building. So it's like, you know, we're the natural class and you guys are the ones taking performance enhancers. So of course you're going to be a little bit better on the whole across the board because you're cheating with testosterone. You know, from 100 men and 100 women, you're going to have more of the men are going to be in that, in a position to perhaps have attributes that's going to make climbing a bit easier than the same percentage of women. So then you have more men operating at that level. So then from that level, you're going to have more men peaking through the top level. You, you know, you see what I'm saying. But also men have been exercising in a structured way for more years than women because women weren't allowed to do competitive sport for, you know, we've only been voting for a hundred years. You know, I think, what was it? I was talking to Keith Sharples recently because he's doing an article about first female ascent and how it's reported and all that kind of stuff. And he was saying that, I can't remember what year it was, but there was some kind of race, like a running race. And they said a woman entered it and did really well. And it was like this big media thing because, you know, until that point, they thought that if a woman ran for more than a mile, her uterus would fall out. You know, like and that was general, you know, we laugh, but that that was what people thought. So actually women haven't, we haven't, we've barely had a chance to get going. So at the time when I first started trying it, it had only been done by, I think, six people. Now it's eight. But of those people was Steve McClaw and Stu Littlefair, who are both 
small for men. So they're similar height to me. I think I might even be slightly taller than Stu, but or at least the same. And I'm the same height as Steve. We've got the same wingspan. We're literally like the same dimensions, except I think I'm slightly heavier than him, which is a little bit depressing. You know, other than that, we're, we're basically the same. And I think, you know, I'm heavier than him by maybe a kilogram or something. So in terms of the what the physical body is capable of, <laughs> there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to maximize my, my physical structure to be able to climb something at least maybe you know, in terms of reaching between the holds, he has no advantage over me. He's obviously way stronger and fitter than I am. And I suppose technically he has higher circulating testosterone so he can build muscle more easily. But, you know, whatever. You know, I suppose that's the gender difference there. But, you know, in terms of reaching beta, for example, reaching between hold sequences, I I can't say that I can't reach or I can't do this or I can't do that because of my physicality. And that I found hugely inspiring because often if you're trying something... I found that more in bouldering. Sometimes I would just hit moves that I just couldn't do or I didn't think I could do because of reach. Whereas with rain shadow, that's never been an issue. And, you know, taken in a very zoomed in way, I wasn't zooming out thinking of doing it in the context of doing the whole route, which I guess I'm thinking about more and more now. And that I think at the beginning would have been overwhelming and would have maybe put me off. In the last episode, Dave talked about experiencing flow in his climbing. This was a big part of my conversation with Mina as well, but it struck me that they were using it for different reasons. For Dave, the flow was an end in itself. That was the escape, the control that he wanted, that joyous feeling of being totally absorbed in what you're doing. But with Mina, it was the other way around. Flow is something to be revelled in, but it's a means to an end. The flow itself is something to be controlled. Yeah, I've actually done quite a bit of work with Hazel Finley this year on kind of flow experience and engineering flow state. I say work, you know, we've done a lot of, we've had like long conversations on the phone about it and she's been helping me to kind of develop those skills. And one of the things we talked and looked at was focus and that ability to, you know, with the flow experience, you're really trying to get out of your conscious mind and trust in your body that it can do the moves. You know, you practice the moves, you work out, say, a crux section. And then really, once you've got it, dialed you don't need to be thinking your way up it what you need to be doing is trusting your body that it knows what to do and often for me at least when I fluff it or fall off or something goes wrong it's because my conscious mind has kicked in with either uh, something negative or just something random or a bit of fear or you know or overthinking over over analyzing overthinking trying to do everything perfectly rather than just letting my body know what let my body do what it knows what to do what it knows how to do. And so we did some kind of techniques around like focusing attention on, for example, for me, it was really useful to do. Um, I didn't like the sound stuff because I like, I kind of block out sound when I'm either red pointing or, or climbing, but sensory stuff worked really well for me. So using something as an anchor to kind of pull your focus. So for example, there's a rest just before the crux on rain shadow. So in that rest, I really focus on the sensation of the holds underneath my fingers. And as I'm chalking up, I do this thing where I like rub the chalk into my fingertips and I really kind of intensely focus on that sensation of my fingers rubbing chalk into my fingers. And it stops me thinking, you're about to set off into the crux. Um, how do you feel? Are you pumped? Are you too pumped? Should you go now? Should you rest a little bit? You know, it blocks out all of that. That and the use of the breath as an anchor really helps me to 
you know, then I take a deep breath and I set off climbing. And ideally I'm not thinking, I'm not even thinking right hand, left hand, move your foot, you know, anything like that. Cause I don't need the instructions because my body knows it's all kind of in there or in the automatic unconscious system. And those are my best climbing moments in terms of, in terms of experience and enjoyment, because flow is an incredibly exhilarating feeling, but also in terms of high points and performance, when I can throw my brain out of my head, that tends to be when I climb the best. I think often people think of flow experience or being in the zone as always being kind of a perfect experience. And it's not, you know, flow can be messy and chaotic and you can make mistakes and you can bodge through them and you can still be in flow. Yeah. So when you make mistakes or yeah, like you say, hit holds slightly wrong or something, I suppose you do react and you do have a kind of conscious reaction to that. And sometimes that can just pull you momentarily out of a flow experience. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fall off. You know, if you're not in flow, it doesn't mean you're always off. And if you're in flow, it doesn't also mean that you're always going to climb your best. Sometimes you just make mistakes, your foot pops or whatever. Um, But I guess when I'm in more of a flow state or when I'm really kind of zoned in and in the zone climbing and I hit something wrong, what I want to avoid is the conscious panic of, oh, I've hit it wrong. Should I readjust? Should I not readjust? Should I do this? Blah, 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 you know, and then ending up kind of hesitating or fluffing it. What happens when I'm in a really in the zone, I can hit a hold wrong and I either go, it's good enough and I crack on or I quickly, I make a quick fire decision and I readjust it and then I carry on or I make one of those decisions and it doesn't work out and I fall off. But it all it's all kind of quick and automatic and you know, even my reactions to something not going to plan are kind of within that automatic realm if that makes sense maybe for a lot of people when you experience flow it just kind of happens and you're like yeah I think I was in flow when I sent that route or I think I was in flow when I was writing or speaking or singing or cycling or you know whatever it is that gives you that flow experience often it's something that happens to a certain extent out of the blue but what we were talking about was creating an environment I guess where it's more likely to happen so looking at the factors that contribute to a flow experience and seeing if you can essentially ramp those up to engineer it more so rather than being like I know that I climb my best when I'm in flow state I hope that happens sometime (laughs) can be like right I know that I climb my best when I'm in flow state what are the factors what are the moving parts, the parameters that I can manipulate to make it more likely for me to have regular flow experiences? If something is, something has to be challenging and it, but your perception of skill has to meet that challenge. So if something is too easy for your perception of your skills, you're probably going to be a bit kind of bored because it's not challenging enough. So if your skills outrank the challenge, you're probably going to be a bit bored. Therefore, your conscious mind will probably be thinking about what you're having for dinner. You're not going to be in a flow state because it's kind of not almost stimulating enough. Equally, if the challenge is super high and your perception of your skills doesn't meet that challenge, i.e. it's too low, it's going to be overwhelming and it's going to lead you into a position of more anxiety. And therefore, you're probably not going to be able to access the flow. So it's making the challenge and the skills kind of match up. And if you're the challenge, if it's challenging, but you perceive your skills to be just enough, that's often when you reach that sweet spot of flow because you're having to concentrate, you're having to focus, you're having to put your whole being into something, but it's doable. 
So it's kind of requires a lot from you and that often takes you into that zone. How those experiences make us feel are very indicative of kind of our mental state and our attachments to various things. And I think it's really interesting to look at because I think there's potentially a lot of room for kind of analysis and growth if you're into that kind of thing. You know, like for me with Range Shadow, I've taken lots of very hard looks at my motivation for trying Range Shadow because it's a lot of time, it's a lot of energy. And, you know, I want to be doing it for the right reasons. So I I check in regularly and I'm and I'm willing to walk away if some of those things change. If it doesn't make me happy anymore, if I'm doing it for the wrong reasons, if I get too attached to an outcome, or if I'm just, I'm not having fun anymore, I don't want to do it, I'll stop. And that's okay. And I've kind of reconciled not doing it, not in a negative, I don't think I can do it way, but I'm willing to walk away from this if things don't add up in the right way anymore. And I'm conscious of that. And I check in with that because I don't want to spend (laughs) months and years of my life doing something for the wrong reasons, because that would be really silly. I think that's quite important. It's quite often missed. You know, people, I think there's a lot, a lot of people in the world do things for the wrong reasons. It just seems like an awful waste of time and energy. Success is, is a very kind of subjective thing. And, you know, if I was the first British woman to climb 9A, that might just be there because I happened to do it first. That's not because I'm the only woman that's capable of climbing in Britain that's capable of climbing 9A. It might just be that I'm the only one that's tried. Or at this point in time, I had more available time to put into it than other people who were capable of doing it. Or I had a better support structure or, or whatever. You know, it doesn't... Yeah, it's not about being the best. Sometimes it's just about, like, who happened to get to the top first or whatever um so i think in that sense it's important not to hold too much by it i'll be psyched whichever woman is the first british woman to climb 9a whether it's me or someone else that'd be awesome before i tried it i just didn't it hadn't occurred to me that i could be in that club now i feel like i'm in the club even though i haven't done it i'm like an honorary member on a on a time tab um yeah no i mean i feel I feel, you know, there's a there's a very inclusive feeling in terms of the community there and but also I I now identify as being someone that can and is capable of trying in that arena of difficulty. But I didn't at the beginning. I like to think of Mina and Dave's experiences as lying on a continuum. At the one end you seek those moments of flow as an escape, a new identity and control. And at the other, you engineer that state of flow for performance. You often hear this phrase, for the right reasons, when talking about motivation. And like Mina, I take it to mean an intrinsic motivation. It harks back again to that idea of an authentic desire. Even Aristotle talked about this. He said that finding the right reasons was a key part of moral virtue. Performing good deeds without questioning the reasons behind your actions isn't enough. I left Mina with a sense that she's developed a very strong narrative for herself. It centres around her identity as a climber, this idea that she is the kind of person who can do these things, which in turn paves the way for her self-belief, which helps her to stay motivated. But I couldn't decide which was more authentic, experiencing flow for the pure joy of it, or mastering it as a tool for performance. For Dave, the end seemed wholesome, but the means were questionable. 
In Mina's narrative, the ends and the means are one and the same. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening.